This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Oh, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, and or good afternoon, depending on where you're at. And uh, oh, hey Dan. Hey, good morning. Welcome back. Yeah, no kidding. How are things going? How great show last week, by the way. Thank you for uh, for stepping up and stepping in and 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 doing that. That was uh, I appreciate that. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'd like to I'd like to take just a second on that and say uh, so. How many years you've been doing this? Uh, five. So five years out of five years, you've missed one show. Yes. That's how much he loves this audience. <laughs> this is true. Just, this is, just wanted to bring that up. Bring that up. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. Um, I got to do a great presentation um, for the Safe Schools Conference uh, discussing, you, you know, active shooter um, response and, and recovery portion of it and, and realistically how to, how to really get involved in, in your community, in your schools and, uh, you know, plan for it. And even just on the aftermath of it too and what it means. It was, it was a great conversation. Uh, it was a full room. Uh, we had school administrators, teachers, and and school resource officers in the room, and it was a really good conversation. So, um, I it was great to be able to do that. It was a last minute add on to uh, what I do, and, and unfortunately conflicted with being here. And uh, it was I, I was definitely conflicted, but uh, it was thank you for for letting me go do that speech. Yeah, but, absolutely, God, I could do it. Yeah, we're not here to talk about school safety today. We're here to talk about uh, incident management teams, all hazard incident management teams. And specifically today in the urban setting, and we have a special guest coming to all the way from New York City, right? So because we're in California, you get it. No, okay, just like a bad, bad joke. Man. Yeah, keep going, going, keep going, keep, keep going. <laughs> so Richard DePriva, Chief DePriva, come on in. Hey, good morning, guys. Good there. morning. Hey, and, and and Rich, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stay away from comedy because obviously I'm I'm not a good uh, comic. But well, I, I do. I can talk about emergency management and incident management team stuff. So we'll stick with that topic today. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at humor either. So, <laughs> um, so you know, incident management teams. Most of us think about those large campaign fires. At least those of us on the West Coast. Um, and, and in the Western United States, think about those large campaign fires, uh, maybe maybe coming out for hurricanes or something like that. But we never really think about them sitting in the in the urban center. Um, why is it? Well, first of all, when did emergency, when did the incident management team start in the urban centers? And then why is it important for um, you know large cities to to embrace the concept? Well, Todd, we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary of 9/11, and obviously that's where our team kind of came out of. Um, prior to that, we did not have a team. And uh, uh, I'll give you a little history of that day, right? That day was a horrible day for the FDNY. We lost a lot of high-level leadership. Um, and it was probably one of the largest scale incidents we've managed. And uh, unbeknownst to the upper echelon, a Southwest incident management team flew out from Arizona. One got dropped off down at DC. One came up to New York and they tapped our chiefs on the shoulder at the time said, Hey, we're here to help you. And obviously being an FDNY, they were like, we don't need you. Who are you? You're wearing green pants and funny looking shirts. Uh, 
they sat back and they watched for a couple of days and then they came back and said, Oh, we heard you're having trouble with radios. We can help you with those radios. We have a cash. And our guys were like, we don't even know what a cash is. And from there, that relationship uh, was forged with some of our founding members. And, and from that and the McKinsey report, you know, they recommended that we, we create an IMT for the city. So uh, FDNY uh, went out and trained originally with about 40 members uh, out West, you know, they, Staff chiefs, battalion chiefs from FDNY flew out and shadowed, you know, NWCG incidents out there and and learned. And uh, some of those relationships are still standing. And we have adopted those relationships with, the, you know, the, the people out there. And um, so our team was uh, officially formed in 2003 with our master agreement, you know, with the U.S. Forest Service. So that's where we, you know, that's where we came from and have worked, you know, since. How many times have you guys deployed um, within the compounds of, of the city or you know on larger events? Or is it mostly just going out and do mutual aid? No, I mean, it depends. In city, we get activated probably once to twice a year on average, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on what's going on. So uh, I joined in 07. I joined the team in 07 and had a couple quiet years. Around 2010 is when the job started to use us more. They would bring us in for uh, big coastal storms that were coming up, big snowstorms to help organize all the extra resources FDNY was upstaffing with. And then um, we've had some crane collapses, some building collapses. If you've seen on the news, we've lost a couple multiple dwellings due to gas explosions. So we get activated for uh, gas explosions, steam leaks, building collapses, uh, legionnaire outbreaks we had, obviously COVID. Um, we also had a scabies outbreak in firehouses. We had... Um, we also prepared for Ebola. So I think year to year, I'd say minimum of one, sometimes three, depending on what's going on. Uh, and you guys do mutual aid. You come out west and help out with the campaign fires. What, what's the what's the experience that you learn from working on those large wildland fires compared to you know working in the city environment? Well, yeah. And like I said, our founding members all learned from out west. And our newer members, you know, when I joined, you know, we, we eventually go out west and uh, I think that process is the process and we learn that process out West and we bring it back to our world, you know, the all hazards world. And, uh, I, I, I do see there has to be some flexibility in the all hazards IMT world. You know, the process is great, uh, out West when you set up, a, a an ICP out in the middle of nowhere and you're dealing with your resources. But, you know, when you're working in a major urban setting across the country, you know, New York city where we work, there's many other challenges that we have to deal with, but we stick to the process. So that process and that training that we learned out there, um, what, what I do, I've been out West as a situation unit leader twice and a IC, IC trainee twice last year. I always come back with lessons learned and how we can tweak how we do things because every team has their own flair, uh, flavor, flair, how they do it. Um, and, you know, we try to ask our members to do the same thing. Like right now, currently we have seven members deployed out West individual resources. Uh, and when they come back, they're supposed to share what they learned and how we can improve. Because I was told when we join our team, we always improve after every incident, we circle the wagons, we see, you know, lessons learned, AAR, hot wash, and how we can improve the team. And uh, if you're not improving, you know, your team's just kind of stagnant. So. Yeah, absolutely. With, with, and I, so my question is kind of, well, some people, they don't understand what, why it's important or how it can benefit 
uh, not only having an incident management team, but relying on an outside incident management team. So can you give a, a brief just a description on, number one, why it's important to have an incident management team locally, but why it would be important to reach outside of your jurisdiction to have an incident management team come inside? Okay. So for example, we get used a lot in New York City and FDNY staff chiefs or city hall, they have their day-to-day -day jobs. And when they get overwhelmed, they need help and they bring us in. So that would be the same for us. We went to Buffalo and we went to Binghamton. You know, we are type three local, regional, national. We have type two calls and some type one calls. And the all hazards world is just starting to adopt, you know, type two and type one qualifications. So, you know, we have a 300 member team, so we can uh, obviously, you know, uh, go regionally, locally or nationally. And, um, you know, for an all hazards team, you know, you're coming in to help uh, an agency. You know, for us, it's mostly, most of our work is New York City and when they are overwhelmed. You know, Legionnaires outbreak we had. Uh, Mayor de Blasio went around the table with his senior level leaders and FDNY, NYPD, all the other agencies. And he said, why are we not doing this? How, how can we do this? So our former chief of department back then raised his hand and said, hey, I have the FDNY IMT. And they, they're aware of us inside the city, but some, some you know, when you have a regime, a regime change, you know, they kind of forget and you have to re kind of teach what we are. So we went and we helped New York City, you know, with the Legionnaires outbreak and our team, you know, worked with City Hall resources, FDNY resources uh, and some other resources to uh, inspect about 80,000 rooftop uh, air conditioners, you know, throughout the city. We had to identify what was water cooled and what wasn't. And, um, you know, what you think is on record is not on record. So that was a challenge. You know, that's why we went up inspecting 80,000 rooftops to verify what was water cooled and what wasn't. So, I, so, I mean, to get back to your question, I, I think it's, uh, I, I feel being on an IMT now that any major city urban area should have some type of local IMT that they can reach out to for the work that exceeds their day-to-day -day capabilities. And obviously that's where a 1% solution, I think is what they say IMTs mm -hmm. are. You know, we come in when it's really bad and when you're overwhelmed. And then we also strive to transition back. Like we don't want to stay 14 days if we don't have to, we're there up to 14 days. But if I say, Hey, Dan, I, I think you, you guys can handle this. Do you want to take it back? And uh, we, we've done that. We did that in Buffalo. We transitioned back after uh, nine days and Broome County, I think the same thing. We were up there about 10 days and we transitioned back. So, uh, and since then, Buffalo and Broome County have been our friends and have reached out for training and, and mentoring and advice. So uh, I, I think IMTs like type three teams should be, you know, spaced throughout the country and the major city areas and uh, definitely beneficial to the local emergency managers. Melissa Lance comes in. She says, using our state's all hazard incident management team during the COVID response was a game changer. She's from Washington State. They help manage a couple of the state's mass vaccination sites and other community response, and they're an amazing asset. So thanks for sharing with that, Melissa. And, and absolutely right. I mean, when you need additional resources, um, if you guys have not, I'd say, you know, experienced uh, what it is to work on, on a large uh, campaign, uh, it, it is definitely... It is definitely a an amazing thing to see. I remember one of the the fires I went to uh, where uh, we were. This is twenty. It was 20, 20, 2008, I think two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. That's what it was. I had to think about it for a minute. Um, you know, we we didn't have any assets. Um, there's fires burning all over the state. Um, we had like two pieces of equipment in the command post. 
by the end of the week, it was a city that was built um, inside of, of where our command post was set up. Uh, and the assets that come in and the ability to, to manage the vast amount of people that are coming into the area. You know, when you have a few thousand firefighters coming down to, to manage some of these fires, it is definitely uh, a handful to, to really get your head around um, moving foods and the, the logistics working. I work the logistics section and just the, the logistics of literally moving food to get people fed uh, was a monumental task to say the least. Um, Elaine uh, says, she goes, hello, quick. Hello. All hazards planning section chief training this week. All right. Good job. She's had a seven, a seven week course. She's in, in five weeks, seven courses in five weeks. Wow. Wow. So, uh, good job on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so, how do you see? Um, you just mentioned the idea that everybody we should actually have more uh, incident management teams um, across the country. Uh, how do you encourage people like Elaine to go and take these courses, and, and what do they get out of it? Well, I, I would say, uh, does is she part of a future IMT, a team that's forming? You know, uh, if if first of all. The, the, the FEMA ICS process, the planning process, and the NWCG process, uh, I think would benefit most emergency managers and, and uh, EOCs across the country. I know they do things a little different, EOCs, but that would help. Um, if she's looking to join a team, all those classes will help. Uh, she'll get to see um, where she wants to focus. For example, when I joined the team, they kind of put me in planning. Uh, when our team was first formed, members jumped between all the different sections because they were trying to cross train and see wh where they were best fit because they didn't even know what a team was when our team was first formed. So if you're just forming a team, if she is, uh, take all those classes um, and then take what you learn back to that and uh, get a task book, you know, start, start getting work. Uh, if she works in an EOC or a state or any type of agency that would allow her to set up uh, basically like an assignment, like, if you have a parade or some type of fireworks show and they can, you know, create an IMT to help run that and they can bring in mentors from around the area to help them with their task books and show them the process, then there's a value taking those classes and, and bring it. But, you know, if, if she's looking to form an IMT, uh, take as many of those classes as you can. Absolutely. You know, um, that's the other thing too, is, is, is taking the courses, working without, working within the system, um, and, and put yourself out there, right? Uh, also, there's also odd volunteer opportunities, um, you know, throughout, throughout the United States as well for teams like Team Rubicon. Uh, they have their own incident management team as well if you want to get experience there, um, you know, working with the American Red Cross, things like this to get, to get out there into the, into the world. Um, and, and don't be afraid to, uh, to ask, you know. Uh, I think that's important as well. Hey, listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I, I want to get a little bit deeper into um, how you guys um, manage your team. Okay. The Outer Limit Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of injuries often seen during austere times. From minor injury on an outdoor adventure with your family to your team responding to a major traumatic event, Outer Limits Supply has the kits to manage most situations, providing practical, user-friendly first aid kits that anyone can use. Enter Ian Weekly, all capitals, at checkout and save 20% off your total purchase. 
Go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. That's outerlimitsupply.com. Power outages can happen at any time. Is your community prepared? The Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can be used to address the need for temporary power for your community. In addition, the Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can provide a platform to support your public information and community resiliency outreach efforts throughout the year to educate and inform people about the need to always be ready. For more information, visit PowerUpConnect.com. That is PowerUpConnect.com. We all know emergency management is dynamic. What you need to know and do can cover all kinds of fields and change on a dime. When choosing a partner, you want someone just as dynamic to help you keep up. The Mid-Atlantic Center for Emergency Management Public Safety is just that. A FEMA partner and one-stop shop for college academics, custom training and consulting. They cover it all and bring you the best of each. So whether you're looking to start your degree, go back to school, train your people, or anything in between, they're here for you. See what you can build together at frederick.edu backslash M-A-C-E-M-P-S. That's M-A-C-E-M-P-S. Well, welcome back after the quick break. I thank you for listening to our sponsors because without them, we could not bring you the show that we bring you today. And... In, in the break, somebody asked a question here. Michael says, uh, many large incidents I can see very are political, such as the recent civil disturbances. How does your team consider this, and do you consider declining involvement? That's a good question. Well, how do you pick your jobs? For us? Yeah. Huh. Ones that we can succeed at? And, uh, <laughs> you know, well, we're, we're willing to pretty much do anything that we're asked to do. Uh, we have not been asked to be involved in anything that political or politically sensitive. Uh, but anytime we deal with New York City, there's politics involved and it's uh, it's a challenge to navigate, you know, because we're trying to make our team successful, say yes to what we can say yes to and say no to what we have to say no to without, you know, uh, uh, closing doors, let's say. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, to answer that question about getting involved in civil unrest and large scale incidents like that, NYPD handles that in New York City. Um, they recently just reached out to us for some help tracking resources. So, uh, you know, we had an initial uh, conversation with them yesterday, some follow-up meetings, you know, in the future to help them track resources during, you know, the, the recent riots that they had. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, again, can't really answer that question because we haven't had to say yes or no to a highly politically sensitive incident like a, a riot. Right. I have a question regarding, so you just mentioned the NY, NYPD. Um, do you have NYPD members as part of your incident management team, or is it all um, inside the, the fire department? Yeah, all FDNY. Uh, we have FDNY fire, FDNY EMS, and FDNY civilian dispatchers and uh, uh, radio operators and stuff like that. So we're all FDNY. We did try to form a multi-agency team for New York City and probably spent about two years working to develop that. And uh, the plug got pulled. It wasn't us. I don't know who pulled the plug, but uh, they said, all right, we'll just use FDNY. You know, because for us, we have backfill in our, in our job. So they can take 30, 40, 50 of us, send us out anywhere and backfill. The other agencies that we were trying to develop this team with, they don't have that luxury. So to leave their desk job for two weeks, they, they can't do that. So uh, right now, FDNY is pretty much the New York City's 
you know, get to the management team. That's a good point about the backfill. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of leads into the question I wanted to ask earlier is like, how do you, when you're developing your team or when you're choosing people to be on your team, um, how, how do you pick them? That's a good question. And we're actually in the process right now of developing another recruitment drive interview process. So back when I joined, uh, an order went out on our department orders, almost like a help wanted ad. Uh, they were looking for skill sets. And, and I was an Army, Army combat medic. And so I was oh, I got mapping experience and this and that. So that's why I got steered towards the situation unit. There really back then there was no interview process. It was sending a resume. And uh, if they if they saw, you know, saw that they uh, knew you or needed your experience, they took you. Since then, we've created more of a um, process where we use the department orders to state that there is a recruitment drive going on. You need these classes at a minimum to apply. You have to fill out this resume. You know, you have to come in for an interview. And right now we're anticipating hiring or taking on 50 to 70 members to our team, but interviewing up to 1,500 to 2,000. So it's going to be extremely competitive. So you're really going to have to come with a good resume and experience. Obviously, some areas we're going to need more like computer techs. That if you come with a good resume, you know, and, and your, your qualifications are good uh, internally, you know, we don't want people with uh, high overtime and high medical leave, right? That'll influence who we take. But um, we, we, have a, we have a policy, you know, a recruitment drive and, and vetting process, and uh, it's going to be hard. I, I, you know, I'm glad I got on when I did because to try and get on now, uh, competing against 1,500 to 2,000 other people, that's, that's hard. Yeah, absolutely, it is hard. But it should be. So that's a, just to give a comment on that. I think that though that's one of the best ways to get quality individuals that are going to work well for your team when you have that much competition. That those who are applying and, and taking the effort to go through that process, they yeah. want to be on that team. They're not being voluntold. They sure. want to be on that team, and they're gonna and they're gonna come with everything they have. Versus, uh, well, they just let me walk on. You know, if I show up or not, no big deal. Versus, hey, I'm gonna I'm competing for this position on this team. It's it's it brings a different dynamic not only to the individual you get, but the team atmosphere. Yeah, and and Dan, like uh, FDNY members see our team as. Oh, they work in the city and they do this and they need to hire us once in a while to drive or work the vaccination sites, but I don't have to leave home. I just went and did that job. So one of our, you know, separated questions is, all right, Dan, you want to join the team. Can you leave next, next week for two weeks or tomorrow for two weeks and, and, you know, be gone from your family. And a lot of people say, you know, I'm not ready for that right now. You know, maybe my, my kids grow up, I could do it. So that's usually one of our separated questions and, and our incidents, usually happen around a holiday or a major sporting event like the Super Bowl or Thanksgiving, like we're going to Buffalo. It was right around Thanksgiving. And we did have people say, oh, no, I got family coming over. Really? All right, thanks. But now you're at the bottom of the lineup because, you know, all these other people said yes. Right. So, yeah. Convenience has no plays no factor when it comes to responding to uh, an emergency or disaster. That has no schedule. So no. <laughs> it's hard to say that. I mean, when you work in our field too, being on call 24 seven is, is one of the things that, that uh, goes with the job. So. Yep. Now, are you guys used for uh, pre-planned events like the, say the Thanksgiving day parade or, or, um, you know, New Year's Eve uh, type of an event, or is that just all um, just regular job? The FDNY internally has a planning uh, session, let's say, and, and they kind of have uh, IEPs from past events and they kind of manage it that way. Uh, We've thought about getting involved with that, but if we if we take that on, then we're going to be married to that. And uh, 
you know, I'm not saying it, it'll never happen, but if it does happen, it would offer us more of training opportunities to other departments. So if we did, if the IMT did run the St. Paddy's Day parade, the fireworks show, you know, we could say, hey, because we have we have friends across the country that allow us to come train with them. So it'd be a great training opportunity for us to reciprocate and say, hey, you know, we're, we're running this event. It's a planned event. Come on up and we'll, we'll you know, sign task books and, and share our experience with you. So right now uh, we don't get involved in really too many pre-planned events. The one that we were going to get involved in uh, was the FDNY MSOC Medical Special Operations Conference uh, that was supposed to be the summer of 2020. Well, we started planning for that six to eight months before. So that was the first one that we really started pre-planning with uh, the doctor and his team to, to work that because they uh, they were overworked themselves year to year and they reached out to our incident commander for help. He put together a team. I was part of that team. So that would have been our first really true pre-planned event to actually work with. And I had some friends down south from North Carolina and Virginia that we told about that and they were going to send some trainees up to us. That, that would have been a good opportunity. But that obviously was canceled due to COVID. Absolutely. Um, now, kind of going on along those lines, we sort of touched on it with the multi-agency INT. But when when you guys are are doing events, uh, say in, inside the city, are you you guys are working directly, or are you working directly with you know the uh, sanitation department um, with NYPD? Um, you know, because obviously there's multiple things going on outside of just the. Uh, uh, especially like say the building collapse, for instance, something like that, where you're bringing uh, multiple agencies to work on it. How does that work with you guys? Well, it's a challenge sometimes, and it, it depends on uh, who you're working with and have you worked with those people before. So um, we we have a SIMS document for New York City, and basically it takes NIMS and then breaks it down to like who's responsible for what in New York City. NYPD has this, FDNY has this, New York City Emergency Management has this. So if we get a building collapse, obviously it's FDNY, it's life, it's life safety, but then it kind of morphs into investigation, right? Why, why did it collapse? So what we will do is we'll have the command post, we'll be the team managing it. And um, when when we work with NYPD, we've learned that we'll, we're gonna make them a branch and we give them a 204 and somebody to explain what a 204 is and what we need from them on a 204 because we're not telling them what to do. We're kind of asking them, all right, so perimeter security, Right. We need inner and outer perimeter security. I don't know how to set that up. I just know we need it. So right. we grab the local sergeant, captain, whoever it, that is, explain to them what we want. And we need to track it on this form because we're trying to, you know, uh, uh, incident safety, cost recuperation. You know, if, if it is, you know, money that can be recouped. And, and that worked for us. And the reason I say that, uh, Todd, uh, I'm, I'm a member of the All Hazards IMT Association. I went to a symposium a couple years ago. It was a Midwest team. It was a firefighter, a bunch of firefighters. They got they got activated to handle a mass shooting in a small town, a small town of let's say 700 that uh, overnight jumped up to about 3,000 with media and law enforcement, and so they brought the FD, uh, the fire department team to help manage it. And their challenge was working with the local cops. Cops don't want to be told what to do, and uh, I, I just we took that back and I was like, all right, that, that's one of our challenges, NYPD. So. And this is where we become flexible in our world. So when we do an ops briefing, you know, we'll allow NYPD to come up and brief, you know, his workforce and uh, it gives them buy-in, you know. Um, so, you know, the other agencies, yes, we do work with 
you know, it depends on what the incident is, you know, sanitation, parks department, um, you know, New York City emergency management. So what we try to do is, uh, I guess, educate the process, share with the process and, and allow involvement from other agencies as much as we can. Like I said, sometimes it's hard for somebody to leave their job to come work with us for eight, 10 days, 24 hour periods. But uh, we do the best we can to involve everybody else with the process. I had a question, you know, regarding um, training you have with the with the team the size that you have in 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 your in your jurisdiction. How how do you guys manage the training aspect of things and have it? Do you guys have a schedule? How do you drill and and train and and bring new members that you're bringing on? You're bringing on this large group of new members up to steam and and get them get them full and ready to go for the whatever the next deployment may be. So good question. When I first joined the team, we had about one or two people that was involved in that. Our team, when I joined, was probably 70 to 80, maybe 90 members. Now we're 300 strong. And uh, we now have a pretty robust training session that kind of falls on the planning, but kind of works directly with the incident commander. Uh, the org chart has changed, like who they report to over the last years. But uh, we have a pretty robust training session that tracks and schedules all the training. So we're in like, a, let's say a cycle. We're taking on new members uh, probably late this year, early next year. So then we're going to start with a cycle of classes, 300, 400, uh, 305. Um, and then we allow those people to start to go out west if they can. And if I can give a shout out and, and uh, to the DuPont Rescue Experience in North Carolina, that's one of our partners that we train with. They have a, a, a training opportunity every November where you can go down and be an overhead position if you want. Very valuable. You go, you get there on a Friday, they have a couple nighttime operations, daytime operations. It's a real incident uh, for lost hikers that they have role players out there and great experience down there. Uh, New York has a wildfire incident management academy, just like Colorado does. Uh, New York uh, incident management academy will allow people to come in and, and get that training opportunity. And uh, Richmond races down in Virginia. So I see value in all these things I've been to and, we, and now we've worked it into our curriculum. So three times a year, if you want to be safety, you have, if, if they let you, you go to those three exercises and get that experience. So we're, we're always looking at opportunities to train. We do full skill exercises uh, every couple of years. Right now, they're working on one for 2022 with our uh, Marine Battalion. It's going to be like a multi-agency, multi-day, pretty much like a week-long uh, exercise. So I look for things like that. I'm a big networker. I'll be like, oh, Todd, what are you doing? Hey, can we send some people? And then, you know, we, oh, so we, when we do uh, full-scale exercises, uh, we became friends with the Indiana IMT. They sent probably 15 to 20 people down to uh, Guardian Center down in Georgia for our full-scale exercise and um, vice versa. You know, we sent people places. So we, we have a, probably a five to eight person section that tracks training. Uh, they track it. They, they, they schedule it and um, check everybody's qualifications. You know, at our commanded general staff meetings, the training coordinator will post it on the board what's needed. Like right now, we need a 420 class for our type two qualification. Um, so we identify who needs it. You know, we're trying to set that up. I think the New York Wildfire Academy is going to try and host a 420 class in October. So we're going to try and get students there. Um, the Northeast Compact Association that we're part of, they have training going on in the, every winter. They have a 380 class that we're going to try and get members up to the 380 class. So uh, we have a dedicated training 
you know, session that, that track and, uh, and schedule. So it's for a team our size, it's definitely a commitment. Yeah. And, and, and that's one of the things that everybody has to understand that uh, you just because you get on a team doesn't mean that it's over. It's, it's training, training, training. And then, uh, you, you know, you, you go to activations and it, and it makes it just seem like it's a uh, another day in the office. But uh, hey, Rich, I do appreciate your time today. Uh, we're at the end of our, our time. Uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime. Hey, thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for your time today as well. Dan, thanks for being here. Um, everybody, hey, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, don't forget to, to come over and join Crisis Cafe as well. And uh, follow us on your favorite, or subscribe, I suppose now it's called, on your favorite podcast player. And, hey, if you're, you know, go on to there, go to Apple. If you can give us a five-star rating, that would be awesome. Um, so we can keep doing what we're doing, and it would be uh, – uh, I love it. Thank you very much for that too. Hey, and everybody, and also please stay safe and stay hydrated.